Good morning. Uh, thanks for coming back today. Continuing reading of Sutta Nipata. We're in Mahavaga, great chapter number three of the five <clears throat> of Sutta Nipata, which has 71 suttas. Today, uh, 3.4, Sundarika Bharadvaja Sutta, which is um, a fellow's name, a Brahmin. Um, his given name here, or his name in the sutta, is Sundarika Bharadvaja. Uh, there was, if you noticed, if anybody remembered, I didn't remember, but it came back. <laughs> uh, sutta Nipata 1.4 is Kasi Bharadvaja Sutta. And that was to the plowing Bharadvaja, or a discourse to Bharadvaja. Bharadvaja was the name of a clan of Brahmins. And Sundarika was a river where this particular brother of this wealthy, very wealthy clan uh, was in the habit of making oblations, offerings at the riverside. So the Sundarika River uh, as the site for Bharadvaja, uh, this member of the Bharadvaja clan uh, doing ritual offerings in the Brahman, Brahman tradition as a Brahmin. The write-up from Tanasaro is a Brahmin questions the Buddha to see if the latter, the Buddha, deserves to receive the cake resulting from his sacrifice. Uh, the cake is what's left over from the sacrifice or what wasn't burned up in the fire or however they did it. I'm not an expert on Brahmin uh, fire ritual. Uh, the write-up from wisdomlib.org is the second link, or one of them, and uh, the, the moderately expanded <laughs> uh, summary is, once, when he was performing the fire rites on the banks of the Sundarika, he, meaning Bharadvaja, the brother, one of the brothers of the Bharadvaja clan, looked round to see if there were anyone to whom he could give what was left over from the oblations, meaning offerings. He saw the Buddha seated under a tree, his head covered, and the note here is, to rouse the Brahmin's curiosity and to prevent him, uh, meaning this Sundarika Bharadvaja brother, to prevent him from being repelled by the sight of a shaven head, says the commentary, um, the Buddha was sitting there with a covered head. And I guess a shaved head was probably, possibly associated with lower caste. And you'll see when we get into the sutta that um, Mr. Bharadvaja had a problem, I was <laughs> shocked by the Buddha. And um, uh, I have some important points or some, this is a very serious sutta. And so this fellow, which we, whom we can call Sundaraka Bharadvaja, um, became an arhat later and came from a very wealthy, important clan. Somebody, there was some writing up that his clan was worth 40 crore. It's like, crore is something like a million. It's like 40 million something. But if you can think about 40 million anything in a currency uh, 2,500 years ago, mm, probably pretty uh, powerful. So this is a very important sutta. I think and it's really very deep and it's going to take a few weeks to read it through because there are many important, very, very interesting, uh, what I consider advanced philosophical uh, teachings. So anyway, um, Bharadvaja 
approaches the Buddha with the oblation and his water pitcher addressed him. The Buddha then uncovered his head. The sight of the shaven head at first makes made Sundarika, the name for the river, draw back. So we'll call him Sundarika, okay? But realizing that some Brahmins too were shaved, he questioned the Buddha about his birth. And that's a very critical matter um, of where the Brahmins are coming from. And Gautama's reply or his uh, directed teaching here to the Brahmins. And again, this is more uh, of the context of Gautama's Buddha Dhamma being um, in a social complex where Brahmanism was the leading religion or philosophy, just as it is today in India. The Buddha explained to him that the important thing was not birth, but leading a good life, conduct. The Brahmin was pleased and offered him the oblation, but the Buddha refused it, saying that he didn't accept presents for chanting verses. It was actually, he didn't, so you, you know, I'm not a Buddhist scholar, but I can see discrepancy, and um, anybody may come up with interesting or valuable insight. It wasn't, it seems to me, that Gautama rejected the food because he wasn't being paid, he didn't get he didn't take food for uh, pay, for chanting, but actually he didn't receive food that had been Brahmin chanted over, food that been, had been impressed magically, actually, by ritual chanting. He didn't accept that food, and that that's the custom of Buddhas, which we'll see in the Sutta. He then advised Sundarika to throw the food into the water where there were no creatures, for who could digest food which had once been offered to a Buddha? And there was another Sutta, I think it was uh, Kasi, Bharadvaja, where the Gautama also is offered food that had been ritually chanted over, rejected it, and it uh, hissed and seethed and popped in the river or in the water where it was thrown. So the Brahmin followed this advice, saw the water hiss and seethe with smoke and steam. Alarmed with hair on end, he worshipped the Buddha who preached to him. Sundaraka entered the Sangha, became an Arhan, the account of the meeting between Buddha and Sandaraka is also is given in Sutta Nipata and uh, Samutta Nikaya with a different title where the, the details differ greatly. It's actually, you'll see when we get into it, um, the Sutta, uh, the, the account in Sutta Nipata is longer. Um, and, uh, but it, it's the same encounter in two different suttas. Uh, that there, in the Sutta Nipata, which we're reading from, the details differ greatly from the other version, Sutta Nipata, from uh, Samutta Nikaya, though the topic of discussion is the same, it's the same encounter. Several additional verses are attributed to the Buddha regarding true sacrifice, and these are critical <laughs> philosophical statements. The commentary calls Sutta, uh, the Samutta Nikaya discourse the Puralasa Sutta, you know, there's, there's a lot to keep Buddhist scholars busy for thousands of years. And there is a, I feel, a little thrill or a joy um, looking into the world of Buddhist scholarship because it's really lovely material, Buddha Dhamma. It's really great. And um, even <laughs> not um, doing Raja Yoga or meditation or Vipassana and letting it all go, releasing fully. Uh, the mental work, Yana Yoga maybe, of study um, is transformative too, can well be transformative too. So in the other place it's called Puralasa Sutta, 
Here it's going to be called Sundaraka Bharadvaja Sutta. Sundaraka Bharadvaja was so called from his habit of offering oblations on the banks of the Sundaraka River. He's also mentioned as meeting the Buddha on the banks of the Bahuka and asking him whether he bathed in that river because it had the reputation of cleansing sins, right? Like bathing in the Ganges that um, uh, Brahmins still do today. And so again, it's Gautama presenting his Dhamma, his teaching, in contrast to many of the assumptions of the Brahmins of the day and today. Buddha answered that purity was not to be won that way and preached to him the Vatupama Sutta. And so then there's uh, Dhammapada commentary, uh, Sundaraka as the brother of these other Bharadvajas in the clan. Uh, there he's mentioned as having abused the Buddha in much the same way as one of his brothers. So <laughs> a Brahmanical abuse of Gautama uh, was a theme, minor theme, and Gautama reformulating spiritual teaching. Uh, soteriological reformulation, reformulating, updating uh, from his perspective and experience, teachings that lead to salvation, where um, physical fire ritual didn't, wasn't, uh, was um, a reflection of the real offering and burning needed, uh, cleansing uh, the body, the physical body in physical water was also considered a physicalization or objectification and therefore distortion of the real cleansing needed offering to gods or offering seeking merit also was reformed or uh, given a, a reframe uh, from Gautama in that um, the real offering is um, of, of distortion or uh, defilements ashravas, asavas and kleshas uh, offering all that is of the three poisons, grasping, aversion, ignorance, or desire, anger, and uh, delusion. Uh, offering that up is the great offering. And burning that away is the true fire ritual. And cleansing that away, uh, craving, clinging, and uh, the ten, the, the ten klesha, the ten uh, kleshas and the asravas, uh, all that, the defilements, the karmic propensities, the distorted mental flow, asavas, effluence, uh, burning that away, cleansing that away, offering that up, that's the real work. And this, again, is to me very, very similar to what Yeshua did in the Middle East 500 years later, uh, where he gave m major reformulation of spiritual teaching to the prevailing religion orthodoxy of his day, which was uh, Hebrew, Hebraic, I guess, Judaic, whatever that could be called, the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees and that whole tradition, where, again, it's uh, salvation was not a matter of birth. It was not a matter of strictly following certain rules. It was not a matter of offering uh, slaughtered lambs. It was a matter of um, inner transformation not dependent on birth and clan and tribe. And um, very much uh, Gautama played a, a role in India versus Brahmanical Vedic orthodoxy uh, 2,500 years ago as Yeshua played in the Middle East 2,000 years ago or so versus the religious 
uh, orthodoxy of his day and time, of his time and place. Uh, very interesting. And this is really a very serious sutta uh, because uh, this was a very serious fellow. Um, we can call him Sundaraka, the, the uh, member of the Bharadvaja clan named Sundaraka because he had that habit of going to the river and offering. And he's a very serious guy. And this is a big fish <laughs> in terms of saving souls, if you want to think of it that way. This is a big fish. And he's a smart guy. And he had a lot of merit. And you know, to be born into a super rich family, you're either super negative or you're super positive generally, uh, to be born into a position of silver spoon or golden, golden spoon, uh, a super rich, wealthy family lineage, you're either very highly negative or very highly positive. Generally, that seems to be the case to me. And <clears throat> in this case, uh, he seems to be very highly positive, a lot of merit, and very close to the end of the line or, or complete and perfect enlightenment but stuck with some uh, michaditi or wrong view. And it seemed to me that Gautama um, gave him a full-barreled <laughs> response. Uh, this is a very intricate sutta. And uh, he goes into some very high philosophy, or what I think is high philosophy, um, because uh, he, he was basically, he had sort of, it looked to me, from my perspective, uh, as um, Gautama's Buddha Dhamma um, making a single massive counterpoint to uh, the basis of Sundaraka's uh, life and practice and path and purpose, uh, which was... A, high, a super wealthy clan, a bunch of strong-minded Brahmins, um, very intellectual, very well-developed, with a lot of respect in the community. Uh, and Gautama was um, addressing all that when he addressed Sundaraka in the Sutta. And... Um, it was a great, uh, there, was, there was a certain edifice, <laughs> non-physical edifice of uh, tradition and orthodoxy and um, uh, pride and um, social, uh, a, a social basis, a, a, a very significant basis that Sundaraka was coming from uh, socially and financially and uh, politically and uh, philosophically and Gautama addressed all that and so there are going to be many links this is going to go on a few weeks because I'm happy to get into the detail uh, for those who appreciate this for those who don't appreciate this I don't know why you're here but that's another matter <laughs> between you and your maker uh, so here we are um Mahabhaga 3.4, Sundaraka Bharadvaja, Tanasaro Bhikkhu's translation, and I'll read the whole thing. It's very long, and there are many notes, and the notes are very long. Uh, first, I'll read the sutta. 
then I'll go through it and read the notes then we'll bring in all sorts of other points and um, it's the first of several uh, discussions because it's um, really a lot so thus have I heard or I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying among the Kosalans on the bank of the river Sundarika and on that occasion the Brahmin Sundarika Bharadvaja was offering a fire sacrifice and performing a fire oblation on the bank of the river Sundarika. Then, having offered the fire sacrifice and performed the fire oblation, he got up from his seat and looked around to the four directions, thinking, who should eat the remains of the offering? He saw the Blessed One sitting not far away at the root of a tree with his head covered. On seeing him, he took the remains of the offering in his left hand and his water pot in his right and went to the Blessed One. Then the Blessed One, at the sound of the Brahman Sundaraka Bharadvaja's footsteps, uncovered his head. The Brahman Sundaraka Bharadvaja, thinking, This venerable one is shaven. This venerable one is a shaveling. He wanted to turn back. But then the thought occurred to him, Still, there are some Brahmins who are shaven. What if, having approached him, I were to ask his caste? Right? Caste is very important to those <laughs> who are born into the society's highest caste, particularly. So he went to the Blessed One and, on arrival, asked, What is the Venerable One's birth caste? Then the Blessed One addressed the Brahmin Sundaraka Bharadvaja in verse, quote, I'm not a Brahmin or king's son, not a merchant or anyone at all. Comprehending the clan of the run-of-the-mill, having nothing, I wander by means of wisdom in the world. Wearing my outer robe, I wander without home, my hair shaven off, my mind completely unbound, not adhering to people here. You ask me an inappropriate question about clan. Sundaraka replies, But sir, Brahmins surely inquire of Brahmins. Are you among the Brahmins? Gautama replies, If you say you're a Brahmin and I'm not a Brahmin, I ask you the three lines of the Saviti and its twenty-four syllables. This is a... <laughs> he's saying, I know your uh, liturgy. Uh, do you know it? And Sundaraka actually uh, deflected and went in a different direction because he uh, was immediately... Uh, <laughs> Uh, apprehended of the recognition, I believe, intuitively, that uh, this is a fellow who knows um, Brahm Brahmanical uh, tradition deeply. Sundaraka then uh, replies in a deflective way, Because of what did seers, men, noble warriors, and Brahmins, many of them here in this world, first arrange sacrifices to devas? <laughs> so he's already um, sincerely starting to ask, for help, it seems to me. The Buddha says, whoever has attained the end and attainer of knowledge should receive an oblation at the time of a sacrifice. His sacrifice, I say, would succeed. Sundarika says, so yes, our sacrifice will succeed for we have seen an attainer of knowledge like you. It's from not seeing those like you that someone else eats the sacrificial cake. Meaning, uh, you, 
you are special, aren't you? <laughs> and uh, I want a successful sacrifice, meaning I want to get merit. I want to get something. The Buddha says, Therefore, Brahman, as you are seeking your benefit, approach and ask. Perhaps you may find here one at peace, with no anger, no desire, no affliction, one with good wisdom. Sandaraka says, I delight in sacrifice, I desire to sacrifice, but I don't understand where a sacrifice succeeds. Tell me, sir, tell me that. The Buddha gives a very long reply, which is the heart of the sutta here. And um, this is where Gautama really um, <laughs> wins him over. And... Um, demonstrates that he is the Buddha <laughs> by his um, statements of attainment and uh, comprehension uh, of reality and path. So the Buddha replies, In that case, Brahman, lend ear. I will teach you the Dhamma. Don't inquire about birth, inquire about conduct. As from wood a fire is born, so a sage even from lowly birth, steadfast, restrained, through a sense of shame, becomes a thoroughbred, like a horse. One tamed by truth, endowed with self-control, attained to the end of knowledge, having fulfilled the holy life, to him at the right time you should bestow an offering. To him a Brahmin aiming at merit should sacrifice. Meaning, what are these Brahmins sacrificing for anyway? They're looking for merit, they're looking for knowledge, they're looking for power, they're looking for some kind of personal spiritual gain. Going on, those with well-restrained minds, straight as a shuttle, to them, at the right time, you should bestow an offering. To them, a Brahmin aiming at merit should sacrifice. Those devoid of passion, their faculties well-centered, released like the moon from the grasp of an eclipse, to them, at the right time, you should bestow an offering. To them, a Brahmin aiming at merit should sacrifice. So the next verses are all um, explaining his perspective on when, to whom a, a, a Brahmin seeking merit should make sacrifice. Unattached, they wander in the world, always mindful, abandoning possessiveness. To them, at the right time, you should bestow an offering. To them, a Brahmin aiming at merit should sacrifice who, abandoning sensuality, wanders victorious, who knows the end of birth and death, totally unbound, cool as a pool of water. The Tathagata deserves a sacrificial cake. Consonant among the consonant, far from the discordant. The Tathagata of infinite discernment, not smeared here or beyond, the Tathagata deserves the sacrificial cake in whom no deceptiveness dwells, no conceit, devoid of greed, unpossessive, undesiring, his anger dispelled, his mind entirely unbound, a Brahmin who has abandoned the stain of grief. So he's sort of saying he's like a Brahmin, um, that type. The Tathagata deserves the sacrificial cake. He has abandoned the homes of the mind, has no possessions at all, no clinging here or beyond. The Tathagata deserves the sacrificial cake. Centered, he's crossed over the flood. 
He knows the Dhamma through the highest view. Effluence, Ashravas ended, bearing his last body. The Tathagata deserves the sacrificial cake, whose effluent of becoming and harsh speech are destroyed, finished, do not exist. He, an attainer of knowledge, everywhere totally released. The Tathagata deserves the sacrificial cake. Gone beyond snares, for whom there are no snares, who, among those attached to conceit, is unattached to conceit, comprehending stress along with its field and its sight, the Tathagata deserves the sacrificial cake. Independent of desire, seeing seclusion, gone beyond the views known by others, who has no supports, no mental objects at all, the Tathagata deserves the sacrificial cake. In whom, having understood them, phenomena from high to low are destroyed, finished, do not exist, at peace, released in the ending of clinging, Upadana. The Tathagata deserves the sacrificial cake. Seeing the ending, seeing the end, an ending of fetters, this is um, ten fetters, seeing the end, an ending of fetters and birth, having dispelled the path of passion without trace, pure, faultless, stainless, clear, the Tathagata deserves the sacrificial cake, who doesn't contemplate self by means of self, centered, straightened, steadfast in mind, truly unperturbed, free from rigidity, free from doubt. The Tathagata deserves the sacrificial cake. Who has no conditions for delusion with knowledge and vision of all phenomena, he carries his last body. Having attained the unexcelled self-awakening, auspicious to that extent is the purity of a spirit. The word was yaka, actually. The Tathagata deserves the sacrificial cake. <laughs> and Sundarika <laughs> rightly impressed and uh, received replies and may my offering be a true offering from having obtained an obtainer having obtained an attainer of knowledge like you as brahma is my witness may the blessed one accept may the blessed one eat my sacrificial cake so he's trying to make that offering the buddha says what's been chanted over with verses shouldn't be eaten by me that's not the nature, Brahman, of one who's rightly seen. What's been chanted over with verses, awakened ones reject. That being their dharma, or dhamma, Brahman, this is their way of life. Serve with other food and drink a fully perfected great seer. His effluence ended, his anxiety stilled, for that is the field for one looking for merit. Meaning, don't give me this, I don't take food that's been chanted over. Uh, you can give me other stuff, but not that. Sundarika says, It is well, blessed one, how I understand who should eat the offering of one like me, whom I, whom I should seek at the time of sacrifice, having received your advice. Uh, whom I should seek. He might be a question here. Who should I seek? Anyway, the Buddha replies, Whose violence is fully gone? whose mind is limpid, meaning clear, transparent, whose sloth is dispelled, fully released from sensuality, one who has subdued boundaries, a master of birth and death, a sage consummate in sagacity, 
and we're going to get into that deeply in the next session or next class. When one like this has come to the sacrifice, then subduing scorn with hands palm to palm over the heart, do homage. Worship him, which just means respect and, and, uh, and venerate. It doesn't mean uh, become a slave to. Worship him with food and drink. In this way, the offerings will succeed. Sundaraka makes a final comment. Master, the awakened one, field of merit unexcelled in all the world, recipient for all the world, deserves the sacrificial cake. A gift given to you, Master, bears great fruit. And that's the end of the dialogue and comes more commentary or review. Then the Brahmin Sundaraka Bharadvaja said to the Blessed One, Magnificent Master Gautama, here you see the different suttas patched together. He says, Magnificent Master Gautama, Magnificent, just as if he were to place upright what was overturned, to reveal what was hidden, to show the way to one who was lost, or to carry a lamp into the dark so that those with eyes could see forms. In the same way has Master Gautama, through many lines of reasoning, made the Dhamma clear. I go to Master Gautama for refuge, to the Dhamma and to the Sangha of monks. Let me obtain the going forth, Pabaja, in Master Gautama's presence, meaning ordained as a monk. Let me obtain acceptance into the Bhikkhu Sangha, into the community of monks. Then the Brahman Sundaraka Bharadvaja obtained the Pabaja in the Blessed One's presence. He obtained acceptance, meaning he was admitted. And not long, not long after his acceptance, dwelling alone, secluded, heedful, ardent, and resolute, he in no long time reached and remained in the supreme goal of the holy life, for which clansmen rightly go forth from home into homelessness, knowing and realizing it for himself in the here and now. He knew, quote, birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done. There is nothing further for the sake of this world, end quote. And so, venerable Sundarika Bharadvaja became another one of the Arahants. Ho, ho. Very beautiful, says I. And, um, all right, 30-30. And, um, let's I back, uh, go from this last line, one of the last lines here. There is nothing further for the sake of this world. Um, being curious, I realized I don't really understand what for the sake of quite means, or I mean, you know, for the purpose of, or in relation to. But actually, um, it's good, <laughs> I find it good for myself to um, look at etymologies, um, look at Google search, ref, search results for phrases that I know, but I don't really fully know, or I know enough to get by like most of our knowing is sufficient, but not um, necessarily profound. It may be, but commonly not. And so, what is the <laughs> um, uh, what uh, idioms? The free dictionary dot com read on for the sake of. What does that mean? For the sake of here, uh, the last link I guess is defined as out of regard or respect for someone or something. So, uh, in regard to, in respect of, or for someone or something, for the benefit, 
advantage or purpose of something or somebody. <laughs> For somebody or something's benefit, advantage, or purpose. May not even be benefit, just a purpose. But particularly benefit or in for someone uh, in relation to something or something in relation to someone uh, also out of consideration or regard for a person or thing for someone or something's advantage or good right so in respect to in relation to someone or something <clears throat> for the benefit advantage or purpose or advantage or good of someone or something and the phrase is um, Nothing further for the sake of this world. The fully enlightened one, the world, by the way, is the 31 planes, or the seven dimensions. It's the totality of dimensionalities in the octave. That's the world. <clears throat> and, and we'll get into what does that even mean, um, the all. This is an important term in Buddhism, the all. Um, there's nothing, there, there's no... The one who's finished with the path has no more regard for or seeking of benefit from the 31 planes and the seven dimensions. <laughs> the entirety of the octave, the entirety of my body spirit, the entirety of uh, vibrating light, um, the illusion of limits, mm, dancing thoughts, the entirety of the manifestation of intelligent energy, 31 planes, Triloka. The one who's finished has no more interest or regard for that all, has no more seeking to gain anything from it all, including nothing to gain from changed mental states. Nothing to gain, certainly, uh, nothing to gain or reject in social life, interpersonality, nor physicality, meaning sensuality, meaning material accumulation, or pleasures of the body, no more, no no more relationship to affairs of body and materiality, uh, relationship and interpersonality, society and community, men mentation, thought, even higher states of consciousness. They're no longer seeking advantage or gain or good from all that. <clears throat> um, the light has been turned inwards, or the uh, will directs attention to no longer seeking um, uh, benefit or good or gain from the entirety of dimensional experience. <laughs> no longer, nothing further for the sake of this world, nothing further is sought or intended or desired for the f from the totality or for the benefit of, of uh, creation. So... That's uh, the end of the path. And again, I don't imply any kind of judgment like we should be this way or that way. Certainly not. I mean, when you're ready to cross the bridge, uh, you will. And we are just where we need to be based on uh, the reality of our desire um, to develop, to evolve, and with our current state of seven chakra uh, configuration. Um, associated with blockage and development and balance and imbalance uh, we're just where we've put ourselves to be by our thought word and deed and that's the perfection you know good thoughts bad thoughts that's the perfection of where we are as James Allen said and um, 
we see in that song, Good Thoughts, Bad Thoughts. <clears throat> and so, um, eventually, one has absolute dispassion, um, and therefore nothing further is um, sought for the sake of from the world in relation to the world or totality. So let me go through this whole sutta from start to finish. Um, particularly, I want to go into the, the notes the, that Tanasara Bhikkhu put in here. Uh, there are like 21 notes here, and uh, <laughs> it's nearly as long as the whole sutta, the commentary, the footnote uh, portion of the page. And so, okay, um, this actually quite a socially important person from an important clan at the time of the Bharadvajas in, that, in, in Kosala was, uh, is the subject of the Sutta. And he initially thinks that Gautama is just a shaveling or I guess a lower caste or some kind of outcast or criminal or somebody who um, is unworthy uh, of sacrifice, uh, of receiving the food from the sacrifice um, or even being addressed. And so his first question is, what's your birth caste? <laughs> this is like the person who, I met a person once upon a time, who uh, the first thing he looked at me, he looked at my shoes to see what's my social level by the quality of my footwear. And um, that was interesting. And um, his shoes were, you know, <laughs> $300, pair of super leather or something or other. And that was uh, the way certain people think. And so uh, he asks about Gautama's birth caste. And that's important to people who are at the top. That's why Yeshua said something like, it's easier for the, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into the gates of heaven or um, enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not rich that's the problem, it's attachment <laughs> to pride, vanity, arrogance, conceit, and um, material accumulation, and uh, ignorance of self, the ignorant conceits of uh, identity, dot, dot, dot. So Gautama basically says, I'm not a Brahmin, and he said I'm not a king's son. He actually was a king's son, uh, meaning don't, he probably didn't want that to be a topic of the conversation, not a merchant or not anyone at all. I'm not anyone at all. I'm not important in terms of birth. That's not a big matter. And this phrase, comprehending the clan of the run of the mill, having nothing, I wander my means of wisdom in the world. This phrase, comprehending the clan of the run of the mill. Uh, according to commentary, note three, by the way, the commentary written as capital S, small n, A. <laughs> took me a long time to figure out what this was. It seems to be Buddha Gosha's Abhidhamma commentary called Samuta Nikaya Atakata. Samuta Nikaya Atakata. So to be a Buddhist scholar, <laughs> you have to enjoy reading and many challenging uh, Pali Sanskrit terms. So according to, I think, Samuta Nikaya Atakata, the clan, and that's, I think, from Buddha Gosha, who did Vishuddhimaga. The clan, so-called, of the run-of-the-mill is the five aggregates. Mm. Five aggregates, five skandhas, the constituents of the sense of self. So the clan, the tribe of ordinary folks, is the constituents of their sense of self. 
basically mind-body. <laughs> the, the, the experiences, the experience of mind-body, physical, corporeal form, its sensations, uh, perception, five sense doors, or physical perceiving, and mental sense or mental perception, samskara, fourth skanda, uh, being um, uh, mental fabrications, I think is a good way of putting it, and consciousness itself. These are the five aggregates, five skandhas, in which there is no solid substantial self, or atta. Uh, the clan, the community <laughs> that ordinary folks live with and identify with is their five aggregates. <laughs> the five skandhas uh, is the birth clan uh, of identity for ordinary folks who don't realize they're all anichanata dukkha, who don't know, haven't perceived, haven't penetrated the characteristics, haven't made penetration of the characteristics in the five skandhas sufficiently, and have wrong view, particularly the wrong view attributing identity and selfhood in the five skandhas or by any mental objectification. Then, <laughs> there's another interpretation. However, the clan of run-of-the-mill people might also refer, so there's disagreement, right? There are different views, and Buddha Gosha has his own opinions. However, the clan of run-of-the-mill people might also refer to the customs of all lineages that don't follow the customs of the noble lineage set out in Anguttara Nikaya, meaning uh, those that are not um, in the Sangha or following Buddha Dhamma, the customs of... Um, non-Buddhist traditions, but it's an interesting it's an interesting way of thinking that the uh, essential, you know, there, there's, there's identity associated with body, but the identity associated with body is based in an uh, identity um, fashioned by mind. It's the mind that identifies with the body. So thinking I am this body is an act done by mind thinking I am uh, of my birth family's religion, identifying myself as of my birth family's religion or caste is an act done by mind. And ultimately, that is the mind identifying <laughs> with the five skandhas, basically identifying with body and, form and sensations. This is my body, and these are my feelings, and then uh, I have these perceptions of the outer world so versus my inner personal experience, outer, inner, dualistic. And the mind sense, I have this personality. This is I, who I am. I am Sundarika. I come here and I am this and that. Or we all have that, you know, persona of a mental personality, mentally fashioned sense of self. Okay. And then the very function of compositing thought, emotion, um, complex um, belief, right? The, the formation of belief. That's all samskaric, fourth skanda. And then consciousness itself, which is what... Um, it's sort of a, more of, of the spirit complex, I think. But um, in Buddhism, the term vijnana, consciousness, fifth skanda, is not held out as some kind of eternal, supreme uh, awakening. Uh, goal or reality, like in Hinduism or Advaita Vedanta, may be the view that <clears throat> uh, mm, indivisible, absolute, eternal consciousness is Godhead, is Brahman, 
Brahman is pure consciousness. The term Vijnana, translated as consciousness, is a viskanda, and in Buddhism it's not considered a big deal, meaning it's just another of these illusory um, constituents taken wrongly, wrongly taken as a self that uh, allows mental activity or that, that is the space in which mental activity occurs, like the mind field. And not different from you can say it's different from Nityananda talking about Chittakash as a mind mind heart space field as um, you know <laughs> Paramaranda or uh, um, Paramatman essence of reality or goal or true nature yes and no <laughs> sometimes people use the same words in different ways and people who don't realize that that's happening think that these teachings are dis in disagreement. Um, I'm not, I don't think so. But anyway, the clan of the run-of-the-mill is, uh, I think, in agreement with, uh, I think, Buddha Gosha, um, a reference to how it is we, ident we, we fashion identity. That's conceit. That the very act of fashioning, men mentally fashioning identity is um, very much associated with eighth fetter conceit. Um, Mana. Mana, I'm sure that mana conceit has something to do with man, man meaning mind. Manasic, mental, the root man meaning mind. And I'm absolutely sure that, in fact, you'll see it down, down the page. <laughs> the term atta, like anatta, no self, also means mind. Hmm. So the term for self, atta, can also be understood as mind. The term mind is commonly thought as the self, or the experience of mind or, or mentation, a mind, mental, men, men, mental existence, the mental phenomena, is taken as a self wrongly, and that's exactly how, that's exactly how the five aggregates are taken as one's clan, <laughs> for the ordinary people who don't realize that there's, a, there's no substantial separative uh, selfhood in that which is uh, empty and uh, arises and passes away in the conditioned. Only the deathless <laughs> uh, is where one can find um, peace. And uh, there's no self in the realm of birth and death. So, having nothing, I maunder by means of wisdom in the world. I wander without home, my hair shaven off, my mind entirely unbound, some people will say, my mind is entirely unbound, and they're just fooling themselves. Uh, but just because he, because one can say it doesn't mean that everyone's fooling themselves. I mean, I wouldn't say it, because my mind is not entirely unbound. But you see Gautama using the term my, right? My, my, my. He's saying me and my a lot here. But that does that, is that the same as us saying me and my? No, absolutely. Absolutely not. So... Uh, one who's free of believing in objectification or free of the objectification process or reification process or um, the ignorance that believes that the, the five skandhas are substantial or of identity, of true nature. Uh, one who's free of that conceit or that folly uh, may use the same words or does commonly use the same words as those who are bound also use. So he says, a lot of me. Hmm? So there are, there are 
Westerners who think that they can't use the word me because that is a <laughs> reification. So they try to contort their language to kind of conform to how they think an enlightened person would speak. Commonly, an enlightened person speaks in common terms that an unenlightened use as well. My hair shaven off, my mind entirely unbound, not adhering to people here. He's um, not attached to people here. Not adhering to can also be understood as not um, fabricating a conception that people are substantial. Mm. <clears throat> when one is really free of objectification or um, believing in the skandhas or believing in some skaric process, uh, can we say there are people? Ra didn't say people. They, in fact, said something like, mind, body, spirit, or entities you so carelessly call a person. So there's a lot of ignorance in our common um, language uh, based in uh, reification or believing that our thoughts and our concepts are substantial. Um, so anyway, you asked me an inappropriate question about clan. Bang, ba-boom. So again, this point that, that the enlightened people, <laughs> I mean, he's pretty, uh, he certainly as enlightened as anybody uh, one can imagine, I think. Much more than uh, common folks on the cover of magazines and, and weekend seminars. Uh, use the same language commonly that everyone else does. Uh, and say things that some arrogant, foolish, deceptive people say. Like, my mind is totally unbound. Lots of frauds, lots of charlatans talk like that. Mm. Then, going on, are you a Brahmin? He's still wondering. Are you a Brahmin? What's going on here? And the Buddha basically <laughs> says, Hey, bro, I know, I, I know your tradition inside out. And so note four, when he said, um, I'll ask you, you, if you say you're a Brahmin and I'm not a Brahmin, whatever, okay, uh, I know <laughs> the three lines of the Savitri. It's a, it's a certain Rig Veda um, invocation to the sun and the note 4 shows the the invocation the syllables uh, total is let us, translation, let us meditate on the glory of the excellent Deva Savitri that he may inspire our thoughts, right, so it's worship or a prayer to the sun god like Ra <laughs> and um, it's written here as this verse in the Gavitri meter, which is a certain metric for um, such ancient prayer, is recited during the Upana, Upanayana ceremony when a young Brahmin boy is invested with the sacred thread, it's a red thread, I believe, that initiates him into the status of a twice-born Brahmin, meaning a rebirth ceremony, a death and rebirth, um, common in many religions when people... Uh, get to maturity, 12, 13, the boy, um, there is a consider, there is a view that they've been reborn. Same in Christianity, obviously. And then he begins his study of the Vedas. Although similar passages were recited when young men of other castes began their education, meaning non-Brahmins, Rig Veda 3, 62, 10 was reserved exclusively for Brahmins. So Gautama is saying, I know <laughs> your initiation chant. And, um, but I'm not a Brahmin. It was also the subject of many meditations on its esoteric meaning, and then you can find that in the Pradaranyaka, in the Upanishads. This is, uh, so, 
Samuta Nikaya Atakata, Buddhaghosha, I think, suggests that the Buddha's question about this verse surprises Sundarika, making him suspect that the Buddha knows more about the Brahmanical lore than he does, which is why he changes his tone with the following question. It's called deflection. Uh, the commentary also asserts that the Buddhist equivalent to Savitri, three lines, 24 syllables, is the expression of homage to the Triple Gem. That's very interesting. Buddham saranam gachami, dhammam saranam gachami, sangam saranam gachami. This is uh, recited many times in uh, Theravadan temples, morning and evening. And um, we used to do that, and um, it's very nice. If you ever meet a Theravadan monk and you say, put your palms together and say that, Buddham saranam gachami, dhammam saranam gachami, Sangam Saranam Gatami. He'll look at you like, wow, (laughs) cool, I like it. Um, We're brothers, or brothers and sisters, whatever. So um, that's an interesting point that there may, that that may well be, three lines, 24 syllables. Um, In Buddhism, uh, comparable to the Savitri prayer, again, Buddhism uh, brought Brahmanism, uh, out of its tribalism, out of its clannishness, out of its body-identified um, rigidities. Uh, so, uh, this again, this is a very heavy sutta. So, Sundaraka then wonders, um, okay, <laughs> hmm, you know, you know the Savitri uh, verse. Mm-hmm. So then, what about? Um, why? What? What? What is um, the purpose of sacrifice then? Um, what is the value uh, of sacrifice? Because he's trying to offer Gautama the food, then he realizes this fellow is not an untouchable or low caste. He's actually um, a very highly developed yogi of some of some sort. Uh, so, what is sacrifice all about? If you're not a Brahmin and uh, yet you know our tradition so well. And then Gautama uh, begins to, this is just the prologue to the very long comment, uh, the very long teaching he gave in the heart of the sutta. Um, He's explaining from his perspective what will generate successful uh, offering or sacrifice and offering. So, it should be to one who's finished, <laughs> not just to one who follows rules or of a certain clan and birth. Whoever's attained the end, an attainer of knowledge. And so <clears throat> the point is that knowledge, the knowledge of the deathless, Nibban, the um, what's beyond the conditioned, what's beyond uh, Triloka, what's beyond birth and death and arising, what's beyond... Um, all objectification or five skanda activity. What's beyond that can be known, but only when the totality of what uh, of of what we call my body spirit or seven chakra uh, of the apparent self or the vehicles of self, the vehicles of energy forms that are used in the octave for um, soul evolution. Only when they're fully perfected, transformed. So, integrating with uh, yoga philosophy, uh, only when the seven chakras are perfected 
fully uh, trans transmuted um, blockage into non-blockage or fully limpid and transparent to uh, thunder in the mountains. <clears throat> only, only when the total apparent self and the vehicles, the seven chakras, seven energy fields, are fully perfected, then one attains that knowledge, not by contorting one's way of speaking. And that one is the one who's worthy of receiving oblation at the time of sacrifice and at the right time, that then will succeed. Succeed means what, right? He's just looking for merit. And the note here is, in other words, the original motivation for performing sacrifices was that the recipient of the oblation would be a pure person, meaning in the origins of the Hindu view. And we, we went through the um, Brahmana Brahmana Dhamika Sutta before, uh, talking about how, from Gautama's view, the Brahmins had fallen uh, from purity and um, holiness, sanctity, even at his time, 2,500 years ago. Um, initially, I guess, that the recipient who gets the cake, sacrificial cake, would be a pure person, pure in conduct, pure in, in, um, in their full spiritualization. Uh, transformation and um, freedom from all distortion or harmful ways. Uh, and so <clears throat> commonly religions become sort of calcified or ossified. Calcified made into calcium and ossified made into bones. Bone, calcium bones. Um, by um, multi-generational um, compounded distortions, uh, selfishness, worldly ways of grasping and aversion, uh, rigidity in doctrine, forgetting the original spirit behind the original teachings, um, flowering of the social organization, as Ra would say. So, originally, um, the, the sacrifice... The, the offering of the food that's been sacrificed through the ritual would be to a pure person who is a Brahmin and or a yogi. And that had changed over the centuries, clearly. Um, and um, like in, in all religions. <laughs> so uh, usually the founder is the high, the high watermark and everything after the founder is a some general degradation. It's called decline of the Dharma. So very few true seekers, so very few in this world. That was a song I wrote in college. So um, that's the one that would succeed, the one that is offered rightly at the right time to the one that's worthy of it by his or her deep transformation. So, okay, um, he Sandharika repeats that and sort of says, okay, that'll succeed when we have seen an attainer of knowledge like you. So he's still um, interested in uh, getting some merit or benefit from making the sacrifice to Gautama. And um, Gautama says, okay, well, uh, ask me what you want to ask, or if you have something to say here, uh, get it out. Um, as you're seeking your benefit, approach and ask, uh, 
and he's saying, I'm at peace, I have no anger, no desire, no affliction. Um, one with good, with good wisdom. No affliction is also um, no klesha. I'm not sure if it was klesha or um, asava, ashrava used here, and I'll look at those a little later. So Sindarika <laughs> is a very um, sweet guy, and he says, I, I delight in sacrifice, I desire to sacrifice, I want it, I love it. Uh, you know, I'm happy to to offer, do what I can. I mean, he's a super rich guy, and he feels joy in offering some of what he has and going through the ritual. So he's a very pure-hearted fellow. But I don't ex understand where sacrifice succeeds. Teach me, sir. Tell me that. So he doesn't really know what leads to successful um, offering or sacrifice. A sacrifice through ritual, then an offering to uh, an appropriate person. And so then Gautama starts the large teaching. <laughs> Number one, don't inquire about birth, inquire about conduct. Birth is not critical. And um, meaning uh, you're not sanctified by caste or clan, um, nor will your sacrifice be successful if you simply uh, direct it to one of certain caste or clan, or Brahmin caste in that case. Then, there's an interesting phrase, as from wood a fire is born, uh, so a sage, even from lowly birth, steadfast, restrained, through a sense of shame. Shame is important. Shame means um, accepting regret and remorse. Yes, I made trouble. Yes, I hurt this person. Yes, I spoke wrongly. Yes, I made a bad decision. Um, I'm sorry. I wish I hadn't done it. But I'm not going to blame myself forever. And I'm not going to beat myself up about it. Um, you know, um, go forth and sin no more, as Yeshua said. But this term, this little phrase here, as from wood a fire is born, is explained in the commentary by saying it doesn't matter what kind of wood is used to make a fire, for in each case the fire is equally hot and bright. And so it doesn't matter about the body and clan and birth family of one who either, um, of one worthy of receiving an offering, nor um, the one that wishes um, the final goal. And this is very simple, but at that time, and even today, you see, there are a lot of, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people, there are a lot of, I mean, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, uh, even Buddhism or Theravadan, uh, uh, Tibetan, Vajrayana, has some, uh, some attachment, I'd say, to the lineage of any person born uh, in, in the community. And so the, the son of a Rinpoche, or a rabbi, or an imam, um, the lineage of a rabbi, or an imam, or a Rinpoche, or a Brahmin, uh, is considered very important. Now, there is karmic basis for why any soul would be born into such a lineage, but birth into a lineage doesn't per se conf uh, indicate um, high attainment. And that's... Um, where many traditions are still stuck, I'd say, thinking that uh, this is a royal family. <laughs> this is a blue blood lineage. 
this is a sanctified lineage and anyone born into it must be wonderful and, and uh, superior. And or only those born into that of this blood can have such attainment or are worthy. So the point here is that any kind of wood makes fire. Uh, the fire is a little different, but fire is fire. And so we go beyond that. And then many, many, many points of um, what um, righteous conduct looks like and how one proceeds along the path. Tamed by truth. Endowed with self-control. Attained to the end of knowledge, right? So the end of knowledge is not an intellectual matter. It's awareness release and knowledge release. Knowledge release, awareness release. Awareness um, of what is beyond um, the three characteristics <laughs> uh, and beyond the five skandhas. Uh, awareness of the deathless. And then knowledge of it comes later. Uh, but it's not an intellectual matter or uh, the intellectual formulation comes later and is secondary, subsidiary to the breakthrough in awareness. Uh, but tamed by truth also includes um, following Buddha Dhamma or the truth of the teachings like the three characteristics, Anicchanata Dukkha, impermanence, insubstantiality or no, no mental selfhood, no substantial selfhood by mind, and um, suffering or stress, Dukkha. Um, truth is taming to the extent that uh, we take upon ourselves the responsibility of living in accord with the truth, with whatever truth it is. This is a big deal, actually. Conform mind to truth, not conform teaching to your preference. Conform yourself to reality, or conform mind to, to truth, and truth to... Confirm, <laughs> conform your belief to reality. <laughs> and then uh, one will be in conformity with truth, the truth of reality. Uh, and the truth of reality is pretty well explained in uh, Buddha Dhamma in relative terms. It's all relative truth. Uh, absolute truth is uh, inconceivable. But relative truth, the truths of spiritual teaching or path that lead to uh, awareness release and knowledge release and uh, leaping, leaping into the boundless and making it one's home um, um, requires um, a, a self-taming by truth. And so that's one reason that, that lots of run-of-the-mill people ordinary worldlings, <laughs> 3D repeaters, or ordinary folks who don't care about this or don't care about self-transformation, don't care about the inner work, um, don't like truth. <laughs> don't want to hear too much. You can't handle the truth. That's right. Most people don't. In fact, the truth is the worst thing for, for many people, or many people reject. I mean, you know, we've got a planet here of souls that don't know that they're being lied to day in, day out. They trust human authority who are professional liars. Mm, yes, indeed. And they don't know it. It's a real problem there. And so they don't want to see the truth that they're being lied to because uh, of the implications, which includes the generation or triggering of fear uh, and rage or helplessness and fear and confusion. Uh, and then, to the... Um, obligations 
um, concomitant with the acceptance of that truth, which is the obligation to do something about it and live in conformity um, to the reality uh, of uh, you know what's called the matrix or the the tissue of lies within which human earth human culture has been fashioned. So truth is a very taming <laughs> to the extent that one loves truth. And so loving truth is loving self-taming, <laughs> one can say. And, you know, we all have our distortions, so one can set aside certain taming for later. But uh, this is a fra lovely phrase, I think, tamed by truth. Self-control doesn't mean harsh repression. It means um, self-improvement, self-correction in thought, word, and deed. Moving to right view, dropping the false, uh, dropping what's unneeded. Uh, with mindfulness, seeing when we're too much and too little. Excess, deficiency, states of mind like that. Like the five pancha indriya. Using mindfulness to recognize when we're in a deflated or exaggerated, um, depressed, collapsed, or ex uh, amplified, uh, agitated mind state, and then moving to balance from that. That's the kind of control that's needed, I think. That's the loot, not too tight, not too loot strings, not too tight, not too loose. That goes to the end of knowledge, <laughs> the end of needing to know. Uh, to that person, you should be at the right time. And so um, the right offering requires the right person or type of person uh, and the right time. And the note here, this is a long note, and uh, I guess we can't do it today. We're already at 108, 108 rings of the bell. So... <laughs> Sorry, uh, that'll be it for today. Uh, we'll be looking at point eight, which actually uh, gets into um, the text of Samutta Nikaya 7.9, the other version of this encounter. And um, very long <laughs> verses from Gautama um, associated again with what is the right kind of person to be given offering by sacrifice to achieve success in that sacrifice, aiming at merit, right? Aiming at merit, that's the point here. And merit is fine, you know, the base, this is called dana. This is the, the, the Brahmanical understanding of dana or generosity, which makes merit. Yeah, no problem. Makes, making merit is good uh, accumulation of good karma. Very nice, very important, because uh, not everybody's uh, ready in this one lifetime to finish evolution in the octave. Mm. It's kind of a, what we're looking at here. <laughs> so there are a lot of people who don't have such much much of a cosmology, who sort of presume that that the only valuable person is the one who wishes to leave the octave in this lifetime. I used to think that, <clears throat> but you know it's okay. There's a lot of joy. Joy is, you know, illusory, but um, there's a lot of value in exploring the octave. <laughs> so uh, not everybody is ready to drop the octave or leave uh, 31 planes from this current lifetime. But Gautama did and uh, showed the way, uh, a way, um, 
a totally valid way that goes all the way to the summit, absolutely, in my opinion. So we'll look more next time at the right person who should, for whom an offering should be bestowed and how that one is and has made himself, herself to be. And um, moving out of Gautama's reformulation of right sacrifice, right Brahmanical sacrifice, to um, Buddha Dhamma path, the path, the teaching of Buddha Dhamma, all of it, and the path, and his uh, attainment. And it's a very subtle philosophy coming coming at the in the sutta. So, I hope that was helpful. It's very interesting. And um, thank you to Sundaraka Bharadvaja for um, being a good man and asking uh, Gautama deeply for help. So, I hope everyone's well. Take good care of yourselves. And good night.